Hello. How we doing? I'm good, man. How are you? Good, thanks. How's your day? It was good. I uh, worked this morning, played around a golf this afternoon. Very, very nice. Chatting some baseball. How about you? Um, I worked from 10 to 2, and then I did absolutely nothing. There you go. <laughs> That's a good day. I was listening in earlier. I heard uh, you're a Yankees fan. Yes, I am a Yankees fan. Yeah, I try to be as unbiased as possible. But Love that. I'm a Yankees fan as well. There you go. Are you born and raised in New York? I'm not. My dad was, so that's why okay. I am. But uh, no, gotcha. I'm born and raised in uh, South Portland, Maine. Very, very nice. Very yeah. nice. So you reached out to me, and I'm super excited about this because I've had this, this stream of independent baseball player friends, it seems like, reach out to me, and David, Frankie, all these guys – uh, CJ, everybody just seems to be amazing. And I can't wait to hear your story and talk to you. So I'm really looking forward to this. Awesome. Yeah, I'm excited. So why don't you tell people a little bit about your baseball background, and then we can get into what you're doing now. Sure. So um, starting high school, I guess, uh, I went to a private high school. Like I said, I'm from South Portland, Maine. And I grew up here. I've lived here my whole life. Um, Went to a private school called Shevers High School. It's a small school. Kids from local towns will go there. And uh, at the time, we were about 520 kids. Uh, most schools were around 1,000, 2,000. Um, so we were a smaller school, but we could draw from different towns. Um, I was really fortunate to play with a lot of good people. Um, one of the most influential people in my entire life in my, my baseball career, uh, Mac McHugh. He was our head coach. Just a tremendous example, tremendous role model, uh, great leader, and competitive as hell. So I love that, and we we built a good culture there, and we ended up winning a state title my senior year. Um, we had some success. Three all-state players uh, won the state title, like I said. Had a good uh, legion run. Um, you know, it was just – it was a really fun high school experience for me. And then, um, you know, out of high school um, – I'm only five foot, 10 inches. Uh, at the time I was about 165, 170 pounds. So, um, I could always put the ball in play. I was always a very fundamental catcher, but you know, I wasn't getting, um, crazy looks, you know, the best offers I got at colleges were just roster spots. And, and the best two schools that offered me roster spots were uh, Holy cross and Bucknell. And, you know, it was, it was a big decision because it's, that can be, that can be influential in a, in a young kid's decision, especially, um, you know, do I want to go division one just to say I, I played in division one school and maybe never get a chance to really get on the field. Um, I'm not saying that wouldn't have happened, you know, you can work hard, but, or do you want to go somewhere maybe a little bit more within your means and contribute right away? So I decided to go to St. Joseph's college. Didn't go too far from home. Um, I'm still a homebody. So, you know, <laughs> it seemed like a good fit for me. I was right up the road from my house. Um, coach Sanborn up there, he runs a top notch program. So, you know, it was, it ended up being one of the best decisions of my life. You know, I played four years there, was a part of three conference championships. We went to three regionals and competed there. Um, and I met some of my best friends in my life. And, you know, that's, that's the best part about this game is you meet, you meet people that you're going you're gonna to follow and keep in your corner forever. Absolutely. Um, so college wasn't, um, wasn't exactly smooth sailing for me, you know, um, my sophomore year, it was actually my birthday, my 20th birthday, my sophomore year, I tore my ACL rounding third oh my base. God. And I, I tried to finish the game. I was catching the game. 
Um, I know you talked to Joe Coyne the other night, yep. uh, one of my best friends ever. And uh, Joe and I both caught at St. Joe's. Mm-hmm. And we would usually flip DH catch. Occasionally, I would play a little first base. Uh, in this game, I was catching, and I tore my ACL, tried to go back out there and finish the game, and it, it wasn't pretty. So I ended up having to leave. Um, ended up rehabbing for two weeks. Wow. Um, because they said you can still play on a torn ACL. They said catching's out of the equation. You're not going to catch the rest of the year. But they said if you rehab and you get strong enough, um, we can brace you up and you could still DH. You could still hit. So I said, let's go bring it on. And, you know, we worked our tails off, um, the team and me, for, for that next two weeks. You know, I got ready and I was able to join for the conference tournament and just DH on the torn ACL. So surgery there came back the following year and Joe uh good thing he's a bulldog you know he did all the catching the next year and um I played a lot of first base and DH'd a lot um until regionals I got to catch a little bit there so um that's junior year going into senior year we have a really good ball club you know this is this is my senior year this is Joe's senior year we had a great group um coming off of three straight conference championships in a row we're feeling pretty good about ourselves and um, five days before the season, I tore my ACL fielding a ground ball at third base, uh, oh the other gosh. one. So uh, another bump in the road there. Um, so I had to, you know, I, I figured I had a decision. I could, you know, rehab it for a couple of weeks and come back and DA. Um, but that wasn't the road I wanted to go because I, you know, I had aspirations to try to play after college. And um, the best decision was to just get the surgery and come back for my master's degree the following year. So that's what I did. Um, I was an English major, uh, secondary ed minor. So I came back and got my, my master's degree in school leadership. And I played my, fa- uh, my uh, post-grad year and finished my baseball career at St. Joseph's. That's awesome. So it wasn't smooth sailing, but um, I wouldn't trade it for anything. And uh, it's just memories I'll cherish and hold on to forever. Um, then uh, with independent ball, it was just one summer. Um, you know, again, a great experience. I had to go down to Delaware for a tryout and there was about 500 uh, players. It was, it was a trial for the a league called the empire league. And you had to pay to go to the tryout. So I paid the money, went to the trial and there's 500 kids here competing or men, really people from all <laughs> over the globe. And uh, I felt like a kid coming out of college, coming out of St. Joe's and you're competing for 70 roster spots. So Naturally, the guys that have played professional baseball that were signed at a high school or drafted um, from another country or somewhere, those guys would usually have an edge just in their resume. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they'd usually get a chance. And so I, I really had to grind that week, and I ended up playing some of the better baseball. I was, I was fortunate. I just locked it in and um, great leadership along the way. I really just held close what my coaches and what my best mentors taught me the whole way. And I was fortunate to earn a roster spot played in the empire league for uh the spring training and then a, a few weeks of the season and then i got called up to the can-am league and um i was only in the can-am league for a short short while and i decided to um to give it up for just a multitude of reasons but that brought me into coaching and uh besides playing you know i think coaching is the second best thing and a lot of coaches coach sanborn always says you know to his team he says you guys are all going to be coaches in in some way shape or form whether it's for your kids t-ball team one day or you know, a college or professional level coach. Um, and I, I do believe that if you really love the game, you're going to hold on to it and, and stay invested in it for a long time. Absolutely. That was long winded, man. I've, I've talked, to <laughs> I'm going to let 
you jump in. Um, no, so, no, I love long stories. And my thing is, I think the less I talk on this, the better it's going to be. So, um, so my first question once, I want to go back to the not playing D1, because I think that's really important for people nowadays, is everyone thinks D1 is the answer. I think Bucknell is Division One, if I'm correct. Yes, Bucknell and Holy Cross, they're in the, um, the Patriot League, I believe. Yeah. Uh, so, both Division One. So what made you say, I'm not going to play Division One. I'm not going to follow the grain, and I want to go do something that, that I enjoy? Well, at the end of the day, what it, what it boiled down to for me was a couple of things. Um, the baseball side of things, I knew if I went to a Division Three program, it was really between St. Joseph's College and UMass Boston. Both mm -hmm. New England, UMass Boston really wasn't at the time. But shortly after, they became a, uh, a New England powerhouse, and they still are today. So it was really between St. Joe's and UMass Boston Division Three, and Holy Cross and Bucknell. And naturally, Coach Sanborn and Coach Yagabrot, um, they both went after me, the Division Three coaches, a lot harder. And I had overnights, and it was a lot more of a personal experience. Um, I felt like both those guys wanted me to the end of the earth, and they, they made that known. So that was a real close personal feeling for me. Um, whereas Bucknell and Holy Cross, I'm not even sure if Bucknell saw me play. They just saw numbers and spoke to coaches and they figured, you know, we can always use a left-handed hitting catcher. Um, if anything, you know, I could have been in the bullpen. So it didn't feel too personal and nothing against those guys. Mm -hmm. Um, at the time that staff, um, great program. Um, but for me, you know, and same thing really with Holy Cross, Holy Cross did see me. Um, I went to the Holy Cross camp, um, but it, it didn't feel like, you know, I wasn't getting any scholarship money or um, it, it, it just felt like the other programs were more invested. So so that was part of it. And then I wanted to go somewhere where I can compete and win a championship. Um, like I said, we won a state championship in high school my senior year. That's a that's a thrill you can't match. Um, so luckily at St. Joe's, we won three conference championships. And um, I feel like I made a good decision because I was able to play and develop as a player. And, and that's ultimately what carried me to the next level. That's awesome. I think that's really cool to hear that you chose comfort and, and happiness over just the name of the school and the Division One aspect of it. I think that's really awesome. So you're into coaching now, and, and you talk about your love for coaching. Where are you coaching, and who are you coaching, and what's going on with that? Yeah, so no figure, homebody. Um, I'm back in my alma mater, St. Joe's. Um, my coaching path, though I was able to right out of independent ball, I was able to be the recruiting coordinator for one year at Daniel Webster college in Nashua, New Hampshire. Um, that was a great gig. And I was able to meet a lot of great people, be out on the road a lot for summer recruiting. Um, but halfway through the winter, we realized the school was going to go bankrupt and wow. they realized, and they told us that, you know, this is going to be your last spring. We'll let you finish the season, but this is it. So at that point it's, you know, you got to move on. So I moved back home and, started coaching at, uh, at Chevers high school, uh, for a year. And then quickly after that, I, I needed to get into the college game. And I realized, you know, if I want to coach until, you know, they have to drag me off the field until I'm coaching third base with a cane. But, um, I realized, you know, the college game was right for me. So St. Joe's is a great fit. Um, and I'm, I'm working towards my own program. That's my ultimate goal is I'd love to be a division three head coach one day. And, uh, so St. Joe's is where I coached during the uh, the school year. And then in the summer, 
um, another one of your buddies, CJ Suarez, um, great baseball mind, one of my best friends in the world, salt of the earth human being. He, um, he's the head coach of the Sanford Mainers in the NECBL. And he was foolish enough to hire me as his hitting coach. So he lets me uh, mess with his hitters a little bit. So it's, awesome. uh, it's a great summer, you know, guys from all over the country, some of the best baseball you're going to see really in, uh, in the country for summer, you know, a lot of big name schools and even, even some division two and division three guys that really know how to play the game. So you see some, some high level baseball. During yeah. those so why do you harp on that? Talk about some of the best baseball you'll ever th see. Cause I think people forget about that when they hear division three, what is division three baseball like? And, and like how talented are those guys really? Well, yeah. And first let me clarify in the, in the NECBL, it's very rare to see a division three. Okay. The, the one I can think of, and there's a few, uh, we signed a guy from Southern Maine last summer, um, a pitcher to chew a few innings, but uh, Sam Dexter, he was um, one of the best players I ever played against, went to University of Southern Maine. He went uh, and played in the NECBL for the Sanford Mainers, and he was a, he was a stud. Um, mm -hmm. But typically in that league, you have to be that level of a Division three player, really, a Division three player that belongs at a Division one school to have a chance in that league. Uh, there was an article released last summer stating that it was the uh, second best league behind the Cape Cod League. And anybody who knows anything about college baseball will tell you that that's the, uh, the cream of the college crop. Absolutely. And if we're second in line to them, um, that's not too bad. So, you know, we, we coach guys from uh, CJ and I, we coach guys last summer from, you know, Vanderbilt and uh, Kentucky and Georgia and just these, these um these big name division one schools so it's great baseball and it's um it's a little different than coaching at a division three school in new england uh the level of play it speeds up on you even that um mm -hmm. but that's not to take anything away from the high quality of baseball uh that you see in division three you see some we have right up the street from us i mentioned usm where sam dexter played they're a uh they're known nationwide and umass boston same thing and and our program, we're known we can hang right there with them. Uh, we're looking to take the steps that they've made, uh, St. Joe's. But um, at the end of the day, you know, we compete, and it's it's high level baseball. There's there's not there is something that separates Division three and Division one, but the uh, the margin's not as big as people really think. Absolutely. So I'm seeing a lot of comments. Uh, Nick was one of the best coaches I've ever had for any team in my lifetime. Goat, best hitting and catching coach around. No one better. What about? I haven't seen these. Hang on, I gotta see who's saying lies. <laughs> you got Tim V one twenty seven, and then you got uh, CJ. Okay. Well, so they're, yeah. they're good liars. I'll tell you that. <laughs> well, I believe them. So, what about your approach to coaching? What is your approach as a hitting coach? What do you do? How do you think about it? And what do you tell hitters? Yeah, it's it's evolved. Um, that's for sure. I'm continuing to learn. I'll be the first to say I do not know everything. I, far from it. I'm always mm -hmm. learning. I never feel like I'm the smartest guy in the room. I never want to be. Um, so I'm constantly trying to evolve. But the thing I'll say about hitting, and everywhere I go, I get dragged in to be the hitting coach. And it's not even – I love co coaching and teaching hitting, but um, to teach defense and to teach catching is really what I love. That's – if I could only – teach one aspect of the yeah. game it would be those things but i think hitting is the most overcoached aspect in all of sports and it's also the most difficult thing in all of sports 
Yeah. And I would argue those two things all day, all day long because you see it. I mean, Twitter, I can't go on my Twitter account without seeing swing down, swing up, do this, do that. Um, it's just one big mess as far as who's right, who's wrong, swing this way, swing that way. Um, but at the end of the day, um, when you're facing 90 mile an hour pitching, 100 mile an hour pitching, balls that are moving this way, that way, it's the hardest thing in the world in all sports. And a lot of, I know pro athletes will say that. They'll, um, even from other sports, they'll say, I can't imagine hitting something, you know, round ball, round bat. Yeah. You don't know what's coming, 97 or 82. Yeah. Um, so that's what I'll tell my players. And I, I'll also tell them, you know, I need you at the end of the day to be your own best hitting coach. You know, I'm going to be here to give you my, my opinion and I'm going to, I'm going to guide you in the best way that I think I can. But at the end of the day, if you want to be a great hitter, you've got to invest in being a great hitter yourself. Yeah. You know, and I'll tell that to parents as well when they try to, you know, pay for a private lesson. If you think, you know, opening up the checkbook and giving me money for one 30 minute hitting lesson a week is going to turn you into Bryce Harper. Um, you got to go find a new hitting coach because I'm just I'm still looking for that recipe. But aren't we all? You know, at the end of the day, it boils down to how bad you really want it and how bad are you going to work for it. Um, so you asked about my training and my style. One thing that's really evolved lately in the past couple years that until somebody convinces me other way, this is how I like to train hitters now, and it's called um, it's called Jungle Tiger. Okay. So something that Coach Sanborn up at St. Joe's just adopted. Uh, we didn't train this way when I was playing there, when Joe Coyne or CJ Suarez was playing there. Um, but in the past couple of years, he's adopted this new philosophy, and it's called Jungle Tiger. So on one hand, you have a jungle tiger who has to hunt for his food. He has to fend for his family. He's got to find shelter. He's got to survive. Okay. And then on the other hand, you have a zoo tiger who gets all his meals given to him every day who has shelter in the cage, who's protected by the, the, uh, the zoo owners. And he's given water every day. He's bathed. He's had an easy life, you know? So you can take that analogy and you can, you can put that onto, into any sport and any training. So a lot of baseball is, you know, let's hit routine ground balls. Let's field basic plays. Let's take batting practice with 40 mile an hour pitching. Let's hit off a tee for 20 minutes mindlessly. And then you get into a game and you're facing 88 and a nasty slider and a changeup that falls off the friggin' table and you're done for because you haven't yeah. trained that way. So yeah. what we try to do is we try to make our, our training chaos based. We try to, we try to do chaos training. So what we'll do is we'll do high velo machine work, or I'll do a round where I'm throwing BP and they don't know what's coming. Um, and whenever we do uh, drills like that, we'll use, We'll use small balls. We'll use colored baseballs. They have to shout things out. What we want to do is essentially make practice more difficult than the game. So then when they get in the game, it feels easy. And it's not just with hitting. We do that with all other aspects, pitching, defense. We try to, we try to jungle tiger it, we say. Absolutely. And it's, I love it. And you yeah. can do it at basketball. You know, Instead of just shooting open three-pointers, have somebody guard you. Make it game-like. Make it harder. Put an yeah. iPad on, you know? Yeah. Get creative. Yeah, so, Absolutely. That's uh, that's something I've been messing with recently in my coaching career, and it's it's paid off. Maybe, and the thing you need to you need to keep in mind is you need a tough-minded kid because you're gonna fail in the practice. We're setting you up to fail when we're cranking that machine up to 85 miles an hour. 
it's getting on you like that. So you're going to fail in practice, but it's going to pay off when you get in the real time. And uh, you just need to be mentally tough enough to, to take your lumps in practice because keep the end result in mind. Absolutely. And baseball is a game of failure. Uh, the best players in the world will only succeed 30% of the time. So you got to think about it that way as well. So you talk about your love for catching and you, you talk about hitting is really hard to teach, but you seem to love teaching catching. What about catching is so fun and, and what's your philosophy there? It, it, yeah, it's just, well, first off, being a catcher my whole life, you know, there was a time when um, all I wanted to do was pitch and play shortstop when I was young. And then it's funny, I, I swear to this day, uh, I was pretty chubby growing up as a little kid. And, you know, you played middle infield, you can pitch, you love baseball. So you got the hands for it. And I think it was because I was just a little chubby growing up. My little league coach said, you're going to go behind the plate. And uh, I hated it at the time, but then you quickly realize you're in every single play and you're, you're really the quarterback and the point guard out there. So it, uh, it carries a lot of weight and it's a, it's just, I can't imagine, you know, going back and investing in another position because I'll always say to parents or anybody trying to become a catcher is if you can catch, you can play anywhere. And that's something I was fortunate in high in uh, college rather was, um, after the knee injuries and coming back from things and also having other good catchers in the program, you know, I could play the occasional third base, first base, left field. Um, and I, I attribute that to catching really. And just seeing the game in front of you, there's, um, you got the best view in the park. Absolutely. Um, so with coaching it, yeah, it's just, there's a lot of toys and trinkets and I'll use the ping pong balls and the dog Frisbee and just different things for form. And that's, that's sort of along what I was talking to you about with the chaos training. Um, if you can catch a mini ping pong ball that I'm putting some funky spin on and frame, and uh, I don't like that to use that term framing it, but if you can, if you can stick it well and you can present the ball well, um, then, you know, you're going to succeed in a game because the game's going to seem easier. So we like, and the, and the guys like that too, you know, I have, we call it my bag of toys or bag of tools. And uh, that's fun. The catchers love that. When we break that out, we get to go and rock and roll with those. Um, and they always have a good time. And it's not just playing what called them toys, but uh, they serve a purpose. So we have a, a big bag of goodies that we tap into and we, we like to use with our catchers. Um, but at the end of the day, your job as a catcher is like I said, to be the quarterback of the team, to run the defense and bottom line, it boils down to making your pitcher look good. You're seeing a lot come out now on uh, sabermetrics of catching different catchers that are stealing more pitches or losing pitches that are actually strikes. So that's, that was always to me playing the game. One of the most, one of the most exciting aspects of, of the entire game was, you know, trying to steal those pitches and setting up the perfect amount of amount off the plate. So you can buy that pitch two or three inches out and learning that the umpire is going to call that and continuing to try to stretch it and see how far you can go. It's just those, those little intricacies of the game that you love and you fall in love with. And um, yeah, coaching catching is a blast, man. It's uh, it'll always be my bread and butter there. That's awesome. Who, what's your favorite kind of pitcher to, to catch the guy who throws 97 and you're just going to gas it. And you know that you're going to put down basically the same sign every single time or the guy who has, four or five pitchers that they need to work backwards. What do you prefer or is there really no like preference there? Well, from, 
experience, I guess, the only guys I caught that were 97 were independent ball players. And um, they're there for a reason because they throw yeah. 97. But they're also there for a reason and not in the big leagues or in affiliated ball because they don't have the best control. Yeah. So at the independent ball level, I actually, as much as I love catching, I, I would say and I would argue that hitting was easier than catching some of those guys. Um, so 97, um, I'm fortunate enough. I catch for a guy, um, another salt of the earth guy. His name is Josh Osage. Who's just traded to the Red Sox this off season. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I know he, this. Um, he lives uh, up in Maine. So, you know, um, I, I catch for him. I'm lucky enough to catch for him. We linked up this winter, cut a lot of bullpens there and he's in the nineties. He knows where it's going. So that's, um, that's nice when you get a, guy with big league command that's yeah. nice you put your mid up and they're not missing by much um but then you know there's like you said that guy that has a four picks mitch and has to work backwards that's the beauty of baseball is give me a soft lefty yeah. that can barely touch 80 at the division three level but he's got a curveball and a changeup he throws for strikes and and we'll make that play yeah we'll mix and so it's just the beauty and finding what works for each guy Absolutely. CJ was, uh, CJ said, who was a better catcher, you or Joe? Dumb question. (laughs) Joe is, uh, I'll always say that Joe is, um, one of the best and, and the best thing to ever happen for me in the game of baseball for my, for my career. Um, there he is right there. Uh, he knows. Um, no, I'll, I'll always tip my cap to Joe. Uh, Joe and I competed like crazy. That was one of the craziest things in college is sometimes it, even though we were like brothers and best friends, it felt like sometimes there was more of a competition with Joe and I than, you know, we obviously wanted to beat the other team, but you have to have those sort of internal battles. And as long as it's not personal and we, we weren't out for blood. Like I said, we love each other like brothers. Um, but, you know, we, we'd certainly pushed each other and we pushed each other to be our best. And um, that my senior year when I tore my ACL, um, I watched Joe go on to have an incredible career. He's one of the best, arguably the best hitter to ever um, go to St. Joseph's College. And he just put on a remarkable career. And um that really hurt to be honest, to sit back with a, with a cast on my leg that whole year and watch him do what I wanted to do that year. And uh, when Joe started playing independent ball, he actually, he lived at my mother's house where I was living at the time, um, still in college. And he lived upstairs. We had a spare apartment. Um, so Joe lived there. And as much as I loved that and we hung out every day, you know, I had to just live vicariously through Joe living as a professional baseball player and, um, you know, sometimes I think if that didn't happen, you know, it might not have motivated me as much or it may not have inspired me as much to work as hard coming back. So, you know, Joe, I can't say enough about that guy. He's, uh, he's the best. That's awesome. And that's what baseball does. I think it builds friendships for life. And, and that's really cool to hear. He speaks so highly of someone like that. And especially someone you had to compete against um, is really cool. So, Let's let's provide a little value for, for people who are sadly on the couch, couch now due to coronavirus and the multitude of other issues going around in the country. What what are you telling your guys to do now? And what do you recommend for players who are who sadly cannot go outside right now? 
yeah, it's you hit the nail on the head, man. It's it's just an awful time. It's something that you, me, none of us we've ever dealt with this. Yeah, anything like this, it's horrible. Um, you know, I give you the cliche answer. You know, we we've done the Zoom meetings, we've checked in with our guys, have had one-on-one phone calls. You say, stay ready, get better, do what you can, hit off a tee, hit in your yard, play wiffle ball, get creative. Um, but you know, I told him, I said, guys, we can we can just fill you up with all this mumbo jumbo and it could go in one ear and out the other. Um, like I said earlier, hitting it boils down to how bad you want it, how bad these guys want it, whether they say, you know, this sucks. I just lost a year of baseball, can't do anything, can't go outside, can't hang out with my friends. I'm just going to sit inside and gain 15 pounds and eat what I want and let my life go down the drain. Sure. But you know, what's your competition doing at the end of the day? And if you're wired a certain way that that would drive me crazy, you know, if I'm sitting on my couch right now and I got to think about Joe coin back squatting 565 frigging pounds, six times, that's going to drive me crazy. And I'm going to go outside and I'm going to go get better somehow. I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to do something, you know? So it really just, that's what I tell them. And I said, you know, guys, I'm going to be blunt with you. It's, it's going to be obvious to us in the fall when you come back, you know, who put in the work, who gained the bad weight, who, wow, he gained a step. He's a little quicker. His arm looks fresh. He looks good. You know, it's going to be clear for us coaches. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I think that's true. And my philosophy is you could either be doing nothing now or you could be doing something to build skills. I was talking to my school career development counselor and they were like, the best thing you can do right now is, is work on the skills you already have whether that's like networking or anything. And I just think that's the biggest thing is work on things you already have and things that you can improve. Um, hmm. That's in, that's in any sense of the term, what baseball or not. Um, so I, I guess sort of the next topic I wanted to talk about is who do you tell your guys to look at? Cause you know, there's big leaguers on TV all the time. Who are some of the, the catchers you look at in the game to be like, try to not really mimic him, but try to take after his style of play or, or sort of work at what he does? Who who are some guys you look at in the big leagues? Yeah, um, it's tough because he's not playing anymore. But um, Derek Jeter, he was the face of Major League Baseball. And that's another cliche answer. But I don't – I like I like what you said. I like, you know, watch how he plays. Um, and, you know, I can show my catchers a video of Yachty getting underneath the ball or a back pick at first base, and I can say, look how he does this. But at the end of the day, everybody's mechanics are going to be slightly different. There are, I do believe, elite mechanics. The best of the best do things a certain way. Um, but I tell guys to, and it's unfortunate because, I mean, the college guys I have, they saw Derek Jeter play and they know what I'm talking about. But young guys, it's going to be soon that, you know, they're going to have missed him. God, that's so Which weird. Oh, I my know. God. And wow. That's, that's just a shame. And that's why, like, when I was watching The Last Dance, it's I was born in 1993, so that's when MJ was reign and terror. I wasn't invested in that. I didn't know who he was until, you know, he was gone. Yeah. Gone from the game, at least. And and that's a shame that they're not going to know Derek Jeter and the way he played the game. And what I'll say is, to my college guys a lot, is I'll say, you know, baseball, it's such a mental sport. And if you're just watching the game, even if you don't know much about it, you can tell the guy that's huffing and puffing and throwing his helmet and screaming after a strikeout or the guy that just walks out to his position. And you can tell 
who the guys that are the class acts and the true professionals are, you know? Um, I think for all guys, it's important to go out there and conduct yourself and play like a professional. Even if you're at division three college in Maine, go play like you're at Yankee stadium, go at least, you know, have that imagination to put yourself there because Derek Jeter and what I'll say to them, I'm kind of belaboring the point, but what I'll say to them is, you know, wouldn't matter if Derek Jeter was four for four in a game or oh for four, you could watch him run out to take the field in the ninth inning for the final three outs. And you would have no, have idea, no idea he yep. showed up. Mm-hmm. Like they win big win. He's zero for four with three K's. He's just as fired up as if he hit the walk-off home run. Yeah. And that's what guys don't understand is some guys are great teammates when things are going well and they want to sit there and be your buddy. Um, but when, when they're not having a good game, even if the team is, it's, it's no good. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, and it's, it's the farthest thing in the world from a, from an individual sport. No, absolutely. It, it's, it's the ultimate team sport. And Joe was right. That, that was very well said. Um, now he's just sucking up to me cause I was <laughs> to him. So something that, something that, so this is sort of like a personal thing about catching. I, I, I was a pitcher, but I was a, around a lot of catching coaches. A lot of catchers become coaches, which I think is a common and a, and a good theme. How important is pop time? Because everyone talks about pop time in a different way. And I had a coach once say to me that he had better pop time than most guys in the big leagues. And I'm like, I, I don't really believe you, but, could that be possible? Like what is pop time and do you need to have the best ones in order to be in the big leagues? No, it's, that's, that's something that you just got to dismiss. I wouldn't even give that the time of day. Um, Obviously the best of the best are going to have some of the lower numbers, Mm -hmm. but they also have the best transfers, the best arm strength. And that's something actually Joe and I used to joke about in college was when you go to a showcase as a high school catcher, and you're standing around, you know, you're getting the, uh, you're getting ready to do your, your three throws down to second base or whatever. You've just paid $800 to go to the show and you get the three throws. You're shaking, you're nervous. And then you're not even in a squat, you know, you're half up. You're already turned like this. So kids will, will often like, and a, and a high school kid will get away with their halfway turn. They get the ball, they get it out quick. They got a good arm. Yeah, they may throw some ridiculous times. And then they're going to go around and tell everybody. They're going to subtract a little time first. And then they're going to say, <laughs> yeah, I throw a, I throw a 1-8. I'm a, I'm a 1-9. You don't know how many times, you know, you're sitting around in one of those in high school. And you're asking guys what they throw. And it's like, oh, I'm a 1-8. I'm a 1-9, 1 1-9 1-9 1-9 1-9 1-9 1-9 1-9 1-9 1-9 1-9 1-9 1-9 1-9 1-9 1-9 1-9 1-9 1-9 1-9 1-9 1-9 1-9 1-9 1-9 1-
Um, and that's the thing is like, I would take a, a two one or even a two two right on the money over a one eight one nine that brings the second bit. You don't know where it's going to go. Like three out of 10 isn't going to cut it as far as putting it on the money. You got to, you got to find some other way. I know in a lot of great catchers that, you know, didn't have the best arm strength, but they were efficient with the transfer that got rid of the ball, had good footwork and they were just incredibly accurate. You know, coach Sanborn, he'll always say, you know, think of it like a free throw shot. Honestly, like when we were practicing it, think of it, it's automatic. You're just catch transfer. You move one smooth motion and you, it should be automatic for you to put it on the base every single time. Cause more than pop time, that's what it boils down to is accuracy yeah. and, you know, getting it there. So, so why do you think uh, at these combines and at these camps, why is pop time so important? And if you were able to change it, what would you try to measure for a catcher when you're recruiting them? Yeah, abs I think the pop time at, at an event can be important because I mean, a, a good coach can tell arm strength. Yeah. when you see it and sometimes there may be a catcher that could be really long he reaches for the ball he comes way back here with it um but he has certain tools that you say you know i could work with that or you know i could see that translating you can also see the other end a guy that has textbook form maybe his arm has a little bit ways to go but you kind of see both ends of the or both sides of the coin there rather and what was the second part of your question there what would what would you measure instead, I think, was the second part of my question. Like, what's a better metric for a catcher instead of pop time? Yeah. So, um, I would certainly look at the accuracy and, and, the, and the form, the fundamentals, really. I think it's, it's such a fundamental sport. And as much as people want to get away from – they want to see a low number. They want to see a kid shoot a 1-9. Um, they want to see the guy with the huge exit velocity and all this. Um, they want to train a certain way. I think it's, it's such a fundamental sport and, and yeah. fundamentals really need to be harped on. And the guys that make it the farthest, they do the fundamentals the best. You, you mm -hmm. think of it, the routine ground ball, the shortstop that's going to make it is the guy that makes that play 10 out of 10 times. Um, so I would, I would look at accuracy. Pop time, I, I do have a stopwatch. I'm not saying that I, I don't go to those events and not bring a stopwatch. I certainly do. Um, because you you know you could see a guy be accurate, but he's a he's a two five or yeah, he, and you'll probably be able to tell on the arch of the ball there. But you want to see a guy around a, a high one nine a two, and um, and be accurate. I, I don't I don't care for a guy that's just going to come up and throw it as hard as he can with no clue. Mm -hmm. um, if he can do other things well, if he can yeah. hit the ball, and we can we can calm him down a little bit and, and tone him in, certainly. Um, so there's a lot of things you look for. Absolutely. So how how big is pitch calling? Because I know a lot of coaches like calling it in the college and in the high school level. Do you ask guys you're recruiting about their pitch calling ability or are you controlling it from the dugout? Is that something that you look for in a catcher? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, you got to have a guy that that's going to have a strong knowledge of the game. And as a catcher, you got to be you got to be able to stick your neck out there and make a decision, even if it's not the right decision. Sometimes you cut a ball when it should have gone through or you you let it go through when it should have been cut and you got to live with those decisions. Sometimes you call the curveball when you should have called the fastball. But at the end of the day, it comes down to reading batters and reading tendencies. A lot of programs, they will. Uh, you see, you see it a lot now with the, with the play sleeves. They're getting a number coaches doing this stuff. And then the guy's looking down and he's getting the pitch or you're doing the, the more old fashioned face touches. Um, 
you see that a lot. One thing I liked about the NECBL this summer is, um, and CJ Suarez is our skipper, he allowed the catchers to call their own games. Mm-hmm. We, we kind of talked about that before the season, and he said, no, absolutely, at this level, these guys need to be able to do that, and that's a skill they need to develop. And, oh. you know, there were certain times that, you know, him or I, you'd have a conversation with a catcher after, you know, why did you go to that pitch here after you saw him be early on the fastball or what did that mean when he took that pitch and his body was all out of control? He looked, he looked, why didn't we go back to that? Why did you go to another pitch there? So it's an art, man. And that's baseball is a thinking man's game. And to be a catcher and talking with my buddy, Josh, who's on the Red Sox, you know, I didn't even understand how complex a lot of it just blew right by me. I've got to get him to freshen me up on it and really teach me some of this stuff and how complex it is, especially in the big leagues when, you know, the whole scandal with the sign stealing and whatnot, the lengths that those catchers are going to and the systems, the count systems, the number of touches it's playing baseball is hard enough, let alone having to be a catcher and no different signs for, you know, your starting pitcher has a certain set. Your reliever has a different set. Now there's a guy on second. We got to go to a new set. Um, it's not as typical as your high school, you know, guy on second. We'll just go to the second sign. Yeah. It, it's a lot more than that. Absolutely. So I, I, I guess moving away from the coaching aspect, but what are your views on what's going on with there being no baseball right now and sort of the whole negoti- the whole public negotiation between the owners and the players? Where do you sort of stand on this? Yeah, I haven't looked at all today, so I'm going to just put that out there first. You know, I don't I don't think I'm an expert in this in any sense. Of the, but, you know, what you have is you have some of the most gifted human beings on the face of the earth um, at what they do, um, you know, and there are there are wonderful doctors and there are wonderful lawyers and there are wonderful dentists and these noble professions. And, you know you tip your cap to all them and you certainly have to tip your cap to a major league baseball player because it's such a form of entertainment. It's America's pastime and what they're doing and what they're able to do day in, day out is, is just incredible. And to get there and, you know, independent ball, it's close, but at the same time, it's not even close because, you know, you still would rookie ball and single a double a triple. Those are, those are incredibly hard levels to push through. And, when you get there and you solidify yourself as one of the game's best, like a Mike Trout or a Bryce Harper now, and you're making boatloads of money that you or I could never imagine yeah. right now, hopefully one day, man, we can work towards it and we could of find something that could get us there. But, you yeah. know, right now, we'll never understand what it's like making $67 million a year. So when somebody tells you that, you know, you're going to go out during a national pandemic and probably have to go away from a lot of your family. I don't know all the stipulations and yeah. stuff like that, but you're going to have to go out during a pandemic, put your life at risk, those people that you love's life at risk. And now we're going to cut your 67 million that you've worked your tail off for your whole life and give you a fraction of that. It just doesn't, I, I see what the players are and people will say, Oh, come on, like suck it up. I would play baseball for, $20,000 a year or this or that. But it's like when you work so hard to earn $80 million, like I said, you or I will never know right yeah. now. But, you know, if you get to that point, uh, that's tough to have somebody come in, you know, the commissioner, the, the, uh, the union and say, you know, we're going to, we're going to cut it this much. Will you guys go for that? Um, 
so so I, I agree with the players. That's not going to fly. They need to they need to at least be taken care of better than that. So the latest I heard was they're going to do a shortened season, but they'll still be paid sort of a prorated. They're not going to make all their money, but they would make their prorated money yeah. for, that, for that allotted time. Is that true? That's basically true. I know each side has rejected one proposal once. I know the players want more games and the owners keep saying no. I know the players just had their 114 game schedule rejected today and now they're going back to the, to the negotiating table. Um, but people are saying that 80-ish games will probably be the sweet spot and the owners just want to get to the postseason where they can make all their money and they don't feel they need to add 30 extra regular season games that aren't going to make them as much money. It's complicated. Yeah. <laughs> that's it's, that's uh, why we're tough. sitting at home. Yeah. And bottom line, guys like you and I who love <laughs> the game, uh, this, this sucks on so many levels, man. Cause you know, your personal life's affected now all sports, you know, we're just getting to playoff hockey and playoff basketball yeah. and start of the MLB season. Um, got my college season cut out luckily we went to florida mm -hmm. I was able to go down to florida we played a handful of games before our season got ripped from us but um yeah it's just it's an unfortunate time but we'll get through and we'll we'll be stronger on the other end of it absolutely so we got about 15 ish minutes left i don't like holding people more than an hour um sort okay. of my thing um what's a message that you want to get out there what's something that that's sort of like whether it's about stuff going on now whether it's baseball what's something that you want to say out there oof man um well i would feel bad you know and it it honestly i do because it wasn't the first thing i said is um you know black lives matter and the fact that i didn't i feel bad at this point but you know I will go on to something baseball related, but um, I actually went down to a protest rally personally. And um, I have little cousins, you know, that are half black. And the way the Ameri African-American population um, and other races have been treated in our country for years and years and years is just awful. And black lives certainly do matter. So whatever you can do, um, I don't think just posting a, a black screen to your Instagram is doing a whole lot, but if you can, if you can invest some money, if you can do something to have your voice be heard, um, I think, you know, or I know now is the time, certainly. So definitely want to say that first. Thanks for giving me the opportunity, you know. Absolutely. Um, but I'll, I'll leave everybody with, with one, um, one thing that I, I just look at as my staple as a, as a coach and as a former player of the game. Um, it started in high school with, with Mac McHugh, who I've mentioned a couple of times during the podcast. Yeah. Um, or during the live session, rather, um, is taking the game one pitch at a time. And, and that was our mantra. After, after really underperforming junior year, that's something he harped on. And every team needs to have a mantra. And this is my buddy Josh right there. I, I saw that. <laughs> and, um, great man, salt to the earth. But every team has to have a mantra. And I like having something that's, that's tradition. And, you know, that's a tradition that we started um, and he carried through, he coached 11 years there and it's so simple, but it's, it's so true. You know, take the game one pitch at a time. Don't get too wrapped up in if we be, if we win three out of four games this week, we're going to be sitting here and then we'll play them in the match. Don't get consumed in that stuff. Take the game one pitch at a time. 
And it's a lot easier said than done. Um, another great coach I had along the way, uh, Skip Simon. Um, unbelievable guy. Um, just hard-nosed coach, you know. He would constantly, and this is really my staple, what I'll say my guys, anybody on here that has played for me, uh, they know I sound like a broken record. They hear me say it so much, but I'll say one by one by one by one by one, you know, and you, you really can't say it enough and you can't think about it enough because in this game, if your mind is moving too fast and too far ahead, you're never going to succeed. Okay. So skip what he would say back in the day was he would say, go one by one. If there was ever a guy on first base, he would never say, let's get two, let's turn two. That was never part of it because you can't get two before you get one. Yeah. So he would say one before two to the middle infield, or he would say, you know, one by one and you're in at bat. If you were going up to the plate for an at bat, you know, you can't let that borderline first pitch that the ump calls a strike. You can't let that take you out. No, it's in the past On to the next one. You got to live in the moment. The other analogy I'll, or the uh, example I like to use is think of the outfielder, think of the right fielder who, you know, he hasn't seen, he hasn't touched the baseball all game. He has seen 137 pitches. It's the eighth inning, the starter, the first reliever. He's seen 137 pitches. Not one baseball has gone his way. So besides backing up a base, he hasn't touched the ball. And then on that 138th pitch, ball's hitting the gap. Are you ready for that one pitch? Mm -hmm. That could be the make or break in the game if you run it down and catch it or if it falls for the double. So that's one thing. And anybody on here, my guys, this sounds like, like I said, a broken record, but I think it's important that anybody looking to take their game to the next level um, or really get the most out of their playing career is really go one by one every single day. Um, I heard Will Smith actually say something. I like the example he used called stack your bricks. And even if you just stack one brick a day, it doesn't seem like much, yeah. but over time you stack that brick and you, you hit the ceiling. So um, I guess that that's sort of what I want to leave people with is, you know, go out there and especially now you have a choice every single day. Are you going to sit on your butt and let the video games consume you? Are you going to eat a bunch of crap food and let your body go to waste? Or are you going to, you going to find some way to go get better each day? Um, Cause your competition's doing something as well and they yeah. have a choice to make. So go one by one, take the game one pitch at a time. Absolutely, Nick. I appreciate having you having you on. Whether it's from CJ to Joe Coin to you, you guys are tremendous baseball minds. But I also see that you're tremendous people, and that that's really awesome. Having the 49 minutes to sit down with me, I truly appreciate it. I'll clip this audio up, put it on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, and for sure send you the link. So I truly appreciate your time and and your uh, and your kindness to talk to me today. Thank you. No, thank you, brother. I appreciate it. It was fun. Absolutely. I hope to stay in touch. Please stay well. Yeah, you too. Take care. See you. What's up?